In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever read one of those books called something like Heroes of the Bible? There are plenty of them out there, uh, some of them better than others, I think it's fair to say. You know, you'll have sort of women heroes of the Bible, men heroes of the Bible, heroes of every sort of kind throughout the scriptures. And while some of them are good, and many of them have sort of good uh, tidbits in them, no doubt, I think by and large the concept of heroes in the Bible gives sort of the wrong idea. That is to say, the Bible is not primarily full of heroes. Indeed, we could say that of the church as well. The church is not primarily full of heroes. It's not full of heroes, but it's full of humans. Humans like you and humans like me, who are sinners and need saving. And that's really the heart of our three scripture lessons this morning. Namely, that the only thing we contribute, the only thing we can do in terms of contributing to our salvation is to be humans, to be sinful humans, to be humans dead in sin. But the good news of the gospel is this is something that we all are. We all are humans in need of saving, and that's a pretty easy thing to contribute. So, let's dive in. Looking at 1 Kings here, uh, we see Elijah. And he's kind of our first hero here. Uh, he, he is indeed a hero of the Bible. He's a great prophet. But here he's not acting so heroic, right? And so, so often we see even the heroes in the Bible, even the heroes in the church, aren't always across the board heroic. So here, here enter Elijah. He's a little bit depressed. He's in this funk. But God mercifully, graciously, pastorally comes to Elijah and appears before him with his presence in a soft whisper. Well, firstly here, Elijah is in, in a cave on Mount Horeb. He's supposed to be on top of the mountain, quite literally, because of God's great victory in the previous chapters in 1 Kings. But here is Elijah hiding, depressed, in a cave. Well, Elijah is powerfully human here, isn't he? He's just had an incredible victory over the prophets of Baal, this bloodthirsty god in the surrounding uh, cultures of Israel in the Old Testament that had made its way into the people of Israel. Uh, and in the previous chapters, all the prophets of Baal have come up short and they end up slaughtered. Yahweh has proven victorious. This is a real ministry high point for Elijah. He's on the top of the world. He should be, at least, we might think. But then Jezebel, the wife of the king, gets super ticked off at Elijah because she herself is a worshiper of Baal. So Elijah is something of her nemesis. And so she's trying to kill Elijah. And so even though Elijah has seen great miracles just recently, even though he's been the vehicle for God's great miracles just recently, he's depressed, very depressed, hiding in a cave, 
He's like, nobody likes me. And he goes off to the cave. He's down in the dumps. And so God comes to Elijah here. This is a real pastoral moment. God is appearing in a very pastoral and gracious way, not in a condemning way at all. And God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? And this is not a condemning, what are you doing here? Why are you here? It's not a word of judgment at all. We misread it if we read it that way. It's more of a, what's going on, Elijah? Help me to understand why you're here hiding in the cave. It's very pastoral. And Elijah responds, and essentially, and this is my summary of, of, of Elijah's response, but he says, I've been working so hard for you, God, and yet nobody's doing what I say now. And I'm so alone. My life is terrible. I'm such a loser, and I'm down in the dumps now, God. And so I do think we see here that even, even when things seem to be going very well, as they are with Elijah. He's had this great victory over the prophets of Baal. When it appears that life is great, so often there's this inner drama and turmoil because we're human, and that's okay. Here, Elijah feels like a total failure. He feels like a fraud even, although his resume at this point looks really, really good. And God doesn't gloss over Elijah's depression here or his words. He doesn't try and cheer him up. And he doesn't try and rebuke him or condemn him or lecture him. He says, go outside of the cave and stand there because the Lord is about to pass by. And then God shows up, right? Now, firstly, God shows him various forms, right? He shows him the fire, the wind, the earthquake. This is what Elijah is expecting God to appear. And he's expecting God to show up in the great fireworks. And this is not unreasonable. God just did that very recently. Uh, when uh, he defeated all the prophets of Baal. And yet God is not in those big things. God appears and comes to Elijah in the still, small voice, a soft whisper. God works in these small ways so often. Coming to this depressed man in the middle of the night, in the cave, and he tells him what he's going to do. He tells him about all the kings and then about Elisha, uh, the prophet who he's going to anoint. And he says, this time, I'm not going to work by smiting everyone, right? I'm not going to work by smiting the bad people, like you might expect, but by a change in leadership, right? God says, I will work in my ways, not in yours. And Elijah says to God, you just dropped fire from the sky. Why aren't you doing this with Jezebel? And yet so often in life, I think, we see this with Elijah, so often in life when we are depressed or when we want God to work in big ways or when we've seen him recently working in big ways and we expect him to continue in that way, we think that should carry us through. I should remember God's miracle. I should remember that big thing he did for me. But so often that doesn't carry us through. We are, after all, human. And so, we see the great and the mighty don't always necessarily satisfy our souls, even when God is in the midst of it. But what does satisfy, what does satisfy our souls, what does give us strength is that still voice of God that comes to us in those moments of clarity, those moments that don't come from within ourselves, but that come from God, come from without, and remind us that God is with us, 
and we are not alone. This manifests for Elijah in particular, and that he is not alone. There are 7,000 that have not bent the kneel, the knees uh, to Baal. God is comforting Elijah. He's soothing him. So God shows up to Elijah in this powerful way. And yet, even then, Elijah doesn't fully get it, right? Elijah wraps himself in his mantle, and it's not exactly clear if this is sort of a, an act of piety that Elijah's doing, like, I'm not, I'm not worthy, God, to be before you. Or it might be kind of a whiny, like, I don't want to see you, God. I, I can't take it right now. I'm still depressed. He's still feeling terrible for himself, feeling all down in the dumps. But either way, Elijah hears God in that still small voice, and he still doesn't change. He doesn't get it. He says the same thing that he says at the beginning. Why aren't, why aren't you working the way I think you should be working? And so there's not really even a change immediately in Elijah. And yet God is faithful and consistent in being pastoral and gracious and merciful to the prophet. And indeed, that's how he is with us. As our prayer book says, God's property is always to have mercy. God is patient. And he says to Elijah, I will show you how I work here. And so Elijah is shown here, I think, in, in this moment at least, not as a giant of the faith, not as a hero of the Bible, but as kind of a failure. And yet, like with you and like with me, he's human. And God works through us humans to point to Christ and to our salvation in him. And it is indeed in our failure. That's the only thing we contribute to our salvation. Because that's where God meets us. That's where God finds us. And God still uses Elijah. He says, go to Damascus. Go anoint those kings. Anoint Elisha. Right? And this is ultimately, we see here, pointing to Jesus Christ, our true prophet, our true priest, and our true king. For like Elijah, who's not left alone, there are 7,000 who have not bent the knee before Baal. God sends Jesus to us to ensure us that we are never left alone, but that we also shall be saved. So we see with Elijah, not a hero, but a human through whom God works in Christ. And St. Paul drives this home in the book of Romans. He sort of shows us, evangelically, I think, what this looks like and uh, what, what it means to be a human and to have a human faith and how God works in that. So here we are in our lectionary readings. We're sort of smack dab in the middle of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's talking about the law of God here. There's a lot of famous verses in our uh, lesson this morning, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, says Paul. Now, if you've ever sort of been on the beach and somebody's come up to you and tried to share the gospel with you, or maybe you've been on an airplane and the person next to you, they've probably used this verse, haven't they? But it's interesting. I think this verse is often misused. It's often turned into a law in itself. It's often, people often use it and say, well, here's what you need to do to be saved. You need to confess Jesus as Lord. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Let me unpack that briefly. Paul opens up here with a very uh, rabbinic question, right? Paul was trained in that school of the Pharisees, of the rabbis. 
He says, who will ascend to heaven and who will descend into the abyss? Paul is saying here, if we're operating under the old paradigm here of the law, well, the law demands perfection from us, right? It's not about trying to do your best, trying to follow the law, and God will reward you for that. No, Paul says, if we're saved by doing the law, we have to do all of it perfectly, or we are not saved. Paul says, the good news is, we're not operating under the old paradigm anymore, because the word is near you, he says. The word is in your mouth and in your heart. Now, this isn't any old word that Paul is talking about. This is Jesus Christ himself. Who will ascend to heaven? That is to say, who can, how can I climb the ladder by my own doing and bring God down to me? How can I pull myself up by my bootstraps and save myself? Who will descend into the abyss? Well, that is to say, I must tap into the deepest depths of hell. I must really, really earn my salvation. But Paul is saying here that God doesn't need us to climb to heaven because Christ has already come down to us. Nor does God need us to go to the dead, to the abyss, to earn it. Because Jesus Christ has descended even into hell for us. He's done everything for us. And he's already risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, taking us with him. So that we too, as St. Paul says elsewhere, are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul says you can't go high enough and you can't go low enough to be saved because Christ has already done it all for you. And so, he says, believe. Believe that Jesus has done absolutely everything for you. Believe it. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And Paul is referring back, really, here to what he's been talking about in the previous nine chapters of his letter to the Romans. The righteousness of faith of those who believe who Jesus said he was. Well, this is for absolutely everybody. Everybody is saved in the exact same way, says Paul. This is what he's getting at here. Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, we're all saved in the same way. Through Christ. Through Christ coming near us, through the word coming near to us. Well, how do we know this? Because we hear it proclaimed in the scriptures and in preaching and in word and in sacrament. And faith comes through this hearing of the gospel. And then Paul quotes scripture to show that everything comes full circle here, right? He says, God has always been faithful. He has always been sincere to Israel. But Israel suffers from the same problem that we all suffer from. Just like Elijah, just like each one of us in the church, we are disobedient and we become depressed and we never have enough faith. And so this is why we need the gospel, the seed of the gospel, to fall upon our hearts. And I think so often we want to make Paul's list here of what we must do to be saved so much longer. Right? We want to say, well, you need to confess that Jesus is Lord, and you need to go to church. You need to confess that Jesus is Lord, and you need to uh, recycle, or do this, that, or the other uh, thing. Right? Or you need to confess that Jesus is Lord, 
and you need to believe this or believe that, believe this doctrine, believe this idea or the other. And Paul is saying here, no, all you need to do is be a sinful human and to say, help. That's what he's saying when he says anyone who confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And so Paul tells us here, Paul, who's a great hero and a great human of the Bible and of the church, he's telling us here what it means to be a human and how to be saved. It's to turn to Christ and say, help. And then finally, to uh, close this morning, we see in the Gospel of Matthew this driven home in full. We see the real picture of what it means to have faith and how, as humans in the church, we are saved. So here Jesus is off praying on a mountain by himself, and the disciples are on a boat, and a Jesus comes walking to them on the sea in the early morning. It's dawn. Their boat is being battered by waves. The wind is against them. It's a very choppy sea, right? And so, you know, oftentimes you'll see pictures or, or, or depicted in other ways, Jesus walking on the water. And usually, it's like very calm water, isn't it? And Jesus is it's a very peaceful, kind of tranquil scene. You need to get that out of your minds here. That's not what's going on here, right? Picture uh, Lake George on the sort of windiest day uh, there is, right? It's the day you, you don't want to go out on your boat uh, on the lake, right? That's what it's like here. The uh, waves are like boulders almost. So this is what Jesus is walking over. And so it's, it's really, really rough, right? And uh, for one here, what a great picture of human life, right? The wind was against them. Well, guess what? Each one of us is in a boat called life, and we have a wind against us constantly. Maybe it's an illness, or a particular situation, or an issue at work, or with our family. The wind is against us. But the good news is, Jesus will walk out on the water to us as well. And so, anyways, back to the disciples in the boat. They're terrified. And it's interesting, they don't pray, do they? They don't uh, really even cry out to Jesus. They're simply terrified, and understandably so, right? But firstly, they see Jesus and they think he's a ghost. And uh, first century Jews and just first century in the Roman world in general were pretty afraid of the water, right? It's where the Leviathan lived. And so they're, they're very, very fearful, scared to death, really. And Jesus walks out to them, and his response is so wonderful. It's like God's response to Elijah. It's merciful, gracious, and deeply pastoral. Jesus doesn't say to them, he doesn't say, get it together. He doesn't say, why weren't you praying? He doesn't say, you just saw me do all these miracles. Why didn't you believe? No, he says, take heart. And don't be afraid. And so Peter, he's always ready, fire, aim. He's always right to the gun here. And he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come on out. And so he does. And then Peter, again, he's a, he's a great hero of the Bible. And he's a great human of the Bible. He takes a few steps. He sees the wind. He sees the waves. And he's terrified. And he starts to sink. He says, and he says what Paul says we say as humans to be saved. He says, Lord, save me. 
And Jesus reaches out his hand and he pulls him up. What a great picture of faith. Even when we're trying really hard to muster up our faith, and Jesus is right in front of us, and we've seen him do a great miracle in our lives yesterday, when the wind is against us, our faith is so fragile, and we will sink. If God had tough love, Jesus would have responded quite differently here. But no, Jesus reaches out his hand, and he catches Peter. This is not Peter catching Jesus. This is Jesus grabbing Peter and pulling him out of the water. So this passage here, this gospel lesson, is not about we can walk on water too. It's not about keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. It's not about have enough faith when the wind is against you. Just have faith. No. Our faith is always going to fail us. But Jesus will not. He will always walk out, to the wa- walk out on the water to the boat and pull us out of the sinking that we are doing. So Peter cries out. He says, save me. Jesus saves him. And he says, why did you doubt? Right? And this is not an angry Jesus. This is not you of little faith. Why did you doubt? No, it's, why did you doubt me, Peter? I was here the whole time. In a sense, it's like learning to ride a bike, we might say. Right? We may remember teaching our children to ride a bike, or perhaps we remember being taught to ride a bike, right? And I can remember teaching uh, my son and my uh, middle child, my daughter, to ride a bike. We're just starting with our youngest, and so we'll, we'll get there as well. But you have the child, if you recall, kind of start, you know, they're on the bike, and you kind of start with one, one hand on their back and one hand on the handlebars, and you run with them, and you're moving, and then before they know it, you let go. And then, uh, if your kids are anything like mine, they'll look back and they'll be like, uh-oh, dad's not here anymore. And you start to wobble. And then, boom, crash, and, you know, we've got uh, you know, helmet, elbow pads, knee pads, I mean, every kind of pad you can imagine. So they're good, you know, uh, don't worry. Um, but then I, I say to them, right, we say to them, why'd you look back? You were doing great. I was here the whole time. I was helping. Right? That's the voice, in a sense, that Jesus is giving to Peter. That's the voice that God gives to us. I'm here the whole time. You're doing great. And so, again, we see in the gospel the good news that God is with us. He will pull us out. We are humans. That's what we contribute to our salvation. But God is faithful. And he saves us when we turn to him and say, help. Amen.